A number of years ago, while I was in seminary pursuing my master's degree, I served as a pastoral intern at a church. One evening after the conclusion of a service, out of the corner of my eye, I saw the pastor that I worked for kind of motioning in my direction for a gentleman that he was talking to, kind of saying, hey, go talk to Stephen about that. I was prepared for all sorts of difficult questions that this guy might ask. How do I reconcile the deity of Christ with his humanity? Help me understand God. We talk about this one God, but in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I don't get the Trinity. Or perhaps he was going to ask me to answer something in regards to God's sovereignty over all creation, and yet the fact that we as human beings seemingly have free will. How do I reconcile those things as revealed in Scripture? But do you know what this man asked me? He said, hey, I have this problem. There are ghosts in my house, and I can't get them to leave. Can you tell me how to get rid of them? I did that thing where you blink, excuse me? Come come again? I want to make sure I heard you right. Let me get the peanut butter out of my ears. I want to make sure I'm, I'm hearing you correctly. So I listened to him explain a little of what was going on, and I responded, okay, I I have never been asked that before. Give me 24 hours to think about it, and can I give you a call tomorrow? So the next day, I thought about it some, and the next day I called him and said, I'm going to be honest. Frankly, I don't believe in ghosts, but whatever it is that's happening in your house, the Bible tells us that Jesus rules over all things in that realm, spirits, demons, ghosts whatever you think is happening there. So I would just tell those ghosts that Jesus reigns over, over, over them, and they cannot harm you. A few weeks later, I saw the guy again at church. He approached me, and I said, so how are the ghosts? Like, what do you say a conversation starter with that? And he said, oh, I did what you told me. They're gone. And I thought to myself, you know, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, faithful ministry right there driving out ghosts, ready to defend the deity of Jesus, answer questions about the Christian faith. That's where the power lies. I was so naive. I was so naive. Thinking of local church ministry as lofty, great conquests, while Scripture reveals that the heartbeat of our life together is far more simple, but it's far more extraordinary. You see, in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 19, Jesus reveals the beauty of a simple, extraordinary faith. And what I want to argue for you from this text, the big idea that I want you to hang on to, is that simple, extraordinary faith serves one another and never moves beyond Jesus' glory. Let me say that again. Simple, extraordinary faith serves one another and never moves beyond Jesus' glory. You never get tired of it. I invite you to follow along as I read from Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read all the way from, chapter, from verse 1 all the way to verse 19. Here is Jesus teaches His disciples. And He said to His disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This ends the reading of God's Word. May he write its truths upon our hearts this morning. The first way that we're going to break down this text, that that we're going to see how our simple, extraordinary faith serves one another's good and never moves past the glory of Jesus, is to see that simple, extraordinary faith serves one another's good, serves one another's spiritual good. This is in verses 1 to 6. We're carefully making our way through the gospel of Luke, and where we find ourselves in chapter 17 is Jesus seems to be throwing an assortment of instructions, a grab bag of of, of instructions to his followers, but there's actually, as you look at it, a very specific purpose in what he is doing. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. You have a note of that in verse 11. You actually have that in a few different places throughout uh, these chapters that precede this and coming up to this. Jesus has, as chapter 9, verse 51 tells us, set his face to go to Jerusalem, where crucifixion and resurrection and ascension wait him. But while Jesus is preparing for his death, he is preparing his followers for life in obedience to him. You see, for the Christian, we live between two worlds. We live between this state of conversion or becoming a Christian, being born again, receiving new birth, and we live going, marching towards glory. And so we have this new birth, but we still live in a world in which this is not our final home. We live in this tension between new birth and old hearts or our old sinful nature. Most every Christian you meet will tell you their aim, their desire in life is to glorify God. And yet our hearts still gripped by our fallen sinful human nature oftentimes finds that quite difficult. But Jesus is infinitely gracious to care for His people. And one evidence of His graciousness is that He does not make us navigate this road of discipleship alone. You know what He gives us? If you were to say, Jesus, here are the things that I need in order to grow as a follower of yours, in order to stay on the track that I must walk down, 
How many of us would list in the first 10 things that we, we think would come to mind what Jesus says here, and that is that you need one another. We need each other in the church. We serve for one another's spiritual good. And Jesus gives us two specific ways to do this. First, in verse 1, we do not lead one another into temptation. He says in verse 1, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. That's a strong warning not to bring temptation before other followers of Jesus. Now, this whole idea of temptation, you could have 9,000 different things that come to your mind as to what, what, what would you be tempted by. And let's boil it down to basically two things. Temptation is where you look at something that God forbids, and you say, nah, I think I want that, and I'm going to get it. Or temptation is disobedience to what God commands and saying, yeah, God, I know you're saying to do this, but I am not going to do that. As Christians, we have the responsibility to not put roadblocks in front of one another as we try to follow Jesus. Rather, we have the responsibility to remove roadblocks and walk alongside of one another as we follow Jesus. And so, a simple question that you might ask yourself, Christian church member, as you hear this, as you look at this text, as you interact with it, is how can I help others in our local church family to trust God more, to follow Jesus faithfully? How can I seek to pray for them? How can I seek to encourage them? How can I seek to steward my words, my encouragements, my admonishments, my, my, my affection for them in a manner that seeks to point them to the sufficiency and the worth and the beauty of Jesus? Let us be careful in our conversation, in our interactions, that we do not lay temptation before one another. And now, lest we think Jesus is being too severe, listen to verse 2. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast in the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You know, I've often described the role and the function of a local church as uh, if you're ever up here during the week, you see children that are, go to the preschool downstairs, they'll walk to the um, playground across the property, and they'll be holding hands with one another, walking there to make sure that everybody who left the, 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 play, the preschool makes it to the playground. Nobody let go of anybody else. This is essentially what Christians do in the local church. We metaphorically grab hold of one another, and our goal is to not let go of anyone between here and when we enter into glory. But consider another illustration. I love the movie, It Is A, Won it's, it is a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Perhaps you've watched it this Christmas season. Perhaps you're going to watch it tonight. But there is a troubling plot hole to me. In George's time, and I'm going to spoil something, okay? Like, I, we talked about movie spoilers last week. This movie's like 80 years old, okay? If you haven't seen it yet, that's on you, okay? But in George's time, seeing what would happen if he had never been born, you remember Bedford Falls becomes Pottersville, and everything, everybody that he knew had a worse lot in life. And then he sees Mary, his wife. And what's going on with Mary? She's a single librarian. What's wrong? Does a woman need a husband in order to be fulfilled? In order to be happy? Right, women? You don't need marriage, Marriage is a good gift, but you, you can be perfectly fulfilled as you are. But that's not the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm trying to make is Mary is single in this life that George sees, but if you remember whenever, before George and Mary got married, she had, she had uh, no lack for suitors. 
She had guys chasing her all over the place. But she had her eyes on George Bailey. There was something that she saw in George Bailey. Remember when she was a little girl and at the, at the, at the um, ice cream stand or whatever, whatever it was there, and he had the ear he couldn't hear out of, and she leaned over to him and said, I'll love you, George Bailey, till the day you die. There was something Mary saw in George, his compassion for people, his willingness to serve others. What Mary did is she saw that, and she wanted to be a part of that. She wanted a front row seat to see George become the man that she knew he could become. As Christians, we look around at one another in our church family, and we see, okay, we have been born again by the grace of God. We've been given new hearts. We have the promises of God's Word about what lies ahead for us as Christians and His grace to equip us as we journey in sanctification. And we might be messes in our own, right, in our own way right now, but what we are as Christians, as committed to one another in the church, is we are walking alongside of one another saying, I love you now, and I see the person that God is making you into, and I want to have a front row seat to that. Get that idea of our responsibility to one another? The second way we serve for one another's spiritual good is in verses 3 to 4. We pay attention to ourselves. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, this is fun. When last did you receive a good rebuke? When last did somebody bring something to your attention that you did not want to hear and you said, yeah, I need, I need that. I'll take more. Bring them on. To rightly rebuke somebody in a, in, a, in a Christian sense is to point out something that you see in, in, in a pattern of their life or in, in, in something you hear in their words that gives evidence of sin or spiritual carelessness that could lead them to, to wreck or, or to make shipwreck of their faith. I don't know, have you ever been driving down the interstate, and maybe if you have a newer car you've experienced this, and you've started to merge into the lane beside you, and then all of a sudden you realize that there's another car in the lane beside you? That other car was in your what? In your blind spot. And yet, new automaker, automakers have been putting in new cars this blind spot technology. All these alarms and lights and, and, and sounds go off, warning you, do not get over. There is danger there. You can't see it, but I can see it more clearly than you, and there is danger. Jesus is saying that as Christians, we kind of serve as blind spot warnings for one another. So to rebuke somebody is not to chew them out, it's to offer a gracious word, the kindness of a caution regarding something that you see in them or an attitude that they are projecting that seems to distrust God or seems to say, I'm going to walk in this way even though His Word says I should walk in this way. Oftentimes, well today for example, when I was getting dressed, I had to have, I had to Believe it or not, maybe I'm not the only guy in the room. I have to occasionally get my wardrobe checked by my wife. Hi, how does this look? This was not my first go today. I had to change. The first outfit got a no. We are willing to allow others to make sure that we are looking at least a decent way when we get dressed. Well, we allow one another to inspect our souls in love and in kindness, seeking to ha have hold of one another's hands that we may all reach glory together, that we may see one another transformed more and more into Christ-likeness. 
I saw an example of this in a pastor that I look up to just a few weeks ago. He was speaking at an event and speaking on a panel, and he said some words that were pretty sarcastic about others that would disagree with him on a theological subject. And he was amongst friends, and everybody laughed at it. But another friend of his reached out and said, hey, there are others who might hear this, who might not understand your personality and your tone, and, and your words could do harm to them. And he listened to him, and he said, oh my goodness, you were exactly right. And so he, made a, 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 he recorded something and, and published it on his social media, apologizing for the words that he had said and the tone by which he had said them. This is a loving rebuke that tries to help us to walk alongside of one another. Now, you might hear this, and you have all sorts of alarm bells going off in your mind. You said, okay, Stephen, I've seen enough documentaries about cults. I've seen enough uh, where, where they talk about bearing emotion or individuality is pushed off to the side. Feelings are, are not welcome. And, and I assure you, this is not Stepford Wives Christianity that Jesus is espousing here. Look again at verses 3 and 4. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is not saying, hey, you don't measure up. Get your act together. That would be rebuke apart from repentance. But a culture of repentance in the life of the church is one where we bring our sins and our, 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 our faults before others and we are freely confess them. And what do we receive? We receive grace. We extend mercy to one another. Because the person that warned me about a blind spot last week, I might have to warn them about a blind spot two weeks from now. And Jesus says we have this responsibility of watching over one another's souls. But look at the beauty of this. In a culture that surrounds us, that is, does not know grace, that looks for opportunities to cancel those that get out of line or out of step, Jesus lifts up a culture and a society amongst His people where forgiveness and grace is at the heartbeat of their attitudes towards one another. And do you realize when we confess our sin to one another and a brother or sister looks us in the eye and says, I love you and I forgive you. And I want you to know our Lord Jesus forgives you. That that is the voice and the hands and the mercy of God speaking His grace to you through your brother or sister in the church. Now, of course, there could be all sorts of warnings that I just want to acknowledge. We're not going to get into them. But there have been times where churches and religious organizations have outstandingly, horrifically abused this notion of repentance and forgiveness. When laws are broken, when people are truly hurt physically or in vulnerable ways, and people say, oh, well, he was sorry, so we didn't feel the need to involve the authorities. No, 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 no. There can be legal consequences, and there must be legal consequences for when there's true harm that is done to people. Repentance enables us to forgive, but it does not enable us to sweep hurt and harm under the rug. Imagine a people where you have what we have on the front of the bulletin, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel alone and want community, 
to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who worry and want peace, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever will come. This church offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Luke 17, 3 and 4. And for those of us who are members of this church, who have covenanted together, you realize we've covenanted together in this responsibility to look out for one another. Our church covenant says the following, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. So church members particularly, may we realize that our brothers and sisters in the church are a gift to our souls, caring for us as divine instruments of God's mercy while also recognizing our responsibility to one another, caring for souls, serving as that blind spot warning. Now, you might be thinking what I was thinking as I initially read this and started. I, I, normally on Mondays, I'll start reading through a text, and, and normally it'll be, I'll, I'll look at it and I'll say, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with this this week. It's all jumbled. It doesn't make sense. And sometimes, sometimes you get to Sundays and you say, Stephen, you still don't know what you're going to do with it that week. But anyway, I, I, I was reading this, and I thought, this is heavy stuff. But there's something beautiful in verses 5 and 6. This is where the simple, extraordinary nature of the Christian faith comes to light. Look at verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be upright, uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You catch that? The apostles, seeing all sorts of miracles of Jesus, they've been following Jesus, they've been with him, he's healed the blind, he's even raised the dead to life, he's fed thousands and thousands with a few loaves and fishes. He has done all of these things, and the thing they say, okay, we don't know that we have it in us, is when he says to start treating one another like this. You catching that? They say, oh, increase our faith, we don't know that we can do that. They have probably the same problem that many of us have. Where, as one commentator noted, we're, 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 we're too spineless to offer a needed rebuke, and we're too vengeful to offer forgiveness. And what Jesus says here, they, they say, oh, we need greater faith than this. And Jesus is saying, if you had faith even so small as a mustard seed, that fa- here, here's the thing. When we think of faith, we think of the strength of my faith. Like, I have a lot of faith. We sometimes fail to recognize that it doesn't matter whether you have a lot or a little. The, 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 the strength of your faith is actually the, is, is what the object of your faith is. Okay? So, I could have an immeasurable faith that I could go walk on water out at the beach. I could be 100% sure of it. But I go do it, I'm going to sink. You can be mistaken in your faith. The object of the faith is the anchor that holds us. And so Jesus is saying here, you can bring the smallest faith to the table. And that faith rooted in me, and that is where you see the power of God at work. You think even a little, Jesus, can you work in this situation? I'm going to rely upon you. I'm going to need you to do it. 
Can you do this? Now you think, okay, small faith. All right, it's Christmas. I'm going I'm to start asking for some things. You got your Christmas wish list. You want the things you want God to do. No, no, no. Jesus is saying in this in the context of our spiritual care for one another. You think it'd be, oh, it'd be too hard for me to have that hard conversation with that other Christian, that other church member. Jesus says, have faith. I am at work. I will work in that conversation and for the good of your soul as well as for the good of their soul. Jesus is entirely committed to guarding and keeping his church so you can have confidence as you wade into a hard conversation or you can have confidence as you repent of of sin that is brought to light in your life. If your mask is pulled off, if your failure, your shame, your, 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 your mistakes are brought to light, you are not undone. Why? Because Jesus meets us in unrelenting grace. And he does not say, that's it, I'm done with you. No, he grips our tender hearts in his hands and he says, I am making you into the person that I would have you to be. And I'm not going to give up on you. He says that through his church. It's a fantastic thing, this simple, extraordinary faith that is exemplified in the ordinary faithfulness of Christians doing each other's souls good. But just as we have that object of our faith, Jesus, we now move on and see how this simple, extraordinary faith, secondly, never moves past Jesus' glory. Okay? This is going to be the rest of the text, verses 7 to 19. So it serves one another's spiritual good, and it never moves past Jesus' glory. In two ways we see this. First, we recognize that we are unworthy recipients of grace. This is in verses, an interesting illustration in verses 7 to 10. Jesus basically says his servants will always recognize they are his servants. And they aren't going to seek to step up in their position, never sauntering up to the table, wanting theirs, but always saying, Lord, why have you redeemed and rescued me? They'll always recognize they are unworthy servants. You see that in verse 10. He says, so also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so remember, Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem where he will become a servant of our souls as he will willingly, without reservation, complete the task that awaits him in his death on the cross. And so you take a look at Christmas and you take a look at the cross and you have a Savior who came and who died, who was resurrected, not that we might half-heartedly acknowledge him, not that we might give him lip service, check in from time to time, but that we might be transformed by seeing the wonder of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and that we might fall before him in total trust, recognizing that we are unworthy of such a love. Do you know that Jesus came, that we celebrate Christmas, not that we might be nonchalant or indifferent towards him, but that we might be transformed by him. And so if you're hearing all of this, this stuff about Jesus' birth and the cross and the resurrection, and you are, are, are starting to acknowledge, okay, maybe this demands more of me than I first realized. I would love to speak with you after our service to try to help answer questions, to try to point you to a good resource or two that you can investigate this further. Or maybe ask the person who brought you to church. So, all right, talk to me a little more about the significance of Jesus what it means to actually follow him. You see, sometimes the concept that makes this idea of our unworthiness, to, to, to say that we are unworthy before him, sometimes the idea that makes this difficult to get over is our lack of awareness of, of our, the depth of our sin against God. 
The Bible, you see, it presents God as totally holy, 100% completely holy, righteous, without sin, without blemish. And yet we have this human sinful nature rooted deeply within us that we cannot shake. And the only way that it could be addressed, the only way that we could be transformed would be through the dramatic work of Jesus coming, through God taking upon Himself human flesh, that He might transform those of us who, are dis, who show disregard for Him or disinterest or disobedience, that He might transform us to see Jesus maybe for the first time and find that, oh, there is life in Him. There is safety in Him. There is refuge in Him. And I want to run to it. A culture where, where I can be welcomed in and not have to worry I'm going to make mistakes and let people down but I can be welcomed in by grace. Become my true self that God would have me to be. That is the invitation to enter into His church. But this concept of sin that, that dwells within us oftentimes prohibits us. This reality of our sin prohibits us from moving past that disregard or that disinterest or that disobedience. I read this week about a woman named Julie Hannah. She is a mathematics professor at a university in South Africa. I don't know if she was raised in South Africa, but she grew up in a home where her family had little belief in Christianity. She actually believed Christianity to be no more than fables and fairy tales. She became a lecturer in mathematics at a university in South Africa. She studied various philosophies, religion, science, all of these with, with great zeal, with great zest, because in one sense, she had this, this feeling towards Christianity that she wanted to discredit it. But in another sense, she was trying to find the meaning of life. So she was looking into different religions, different philosophies. And so she struggled with this concept of sin, and, and she wrote the following. I'm now quoting her words as she tells how she became a Christian. She wrote, at one point, quite early in my investigation, when I was still unconvinced by Christian teachings, I was immersing myself in Sufism, which is known for being peaceful and contemplative. I earnestly tried living by its precepts, which included developing patience and love towards others. But this did not come easily. One day I lost my temper with a neighbor over her screaming children. After a heated confrontation, I stormed back into my house, fuming with frustration at my failure to master my emotions. Throwing my hands up in exhaustion, I said, I give up. I can't do it. At which point, a clear voice in my consciousness, quite distinct from my own thoughts, said quietly, of course you can't. It's difficult to describe the profound effect of those surprising words. Laughing, I felt an instantaneous and joyous sense of release from a burden. I realized with absolute clarity that I didn't have to strive to perfect myself. I knew there must be some other way to live a better life, even if I yet couldn't identify the alternative. Much later in my investigation, when I was seriously pondering the Christian concept of sin, I experienced a stark, painful realization of my own sinfulness. It wasn't any one moral failing that awakened this voice of conscience. Only a broad awareness that all my plans and actions had been aimed primarily at satisfying my own needs. Suddenly, biblical claims that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory were more than intellectual abstractions. Sobbing, I fell to my knees in shame. But mercifully, my despair didn't last for long. I confessed wholeheartedly that I was indeed sinful in nature, and I asked for God's forgiveness. Immediately, I was blessed with a profound sense of peace. 
After years of denial and deep reluctance, I was finally ready to submit to the truth of the Christian message. In due course, I would commit myself to Christ and be baptized into His church. How do you never move past the glory of Jesus? How do you serve Him with a joy and a continued sense of your own unworthiness? You never move past the gospel. Reveals our unworthiness and the wonders of Jesus pursuing us in that unworthiness. So we recognize our unworthiness, and secondly, we never move past it by falling before Jesus in glad praise. Now, I want, to, I want you to click in with me on something here. To say to fall before Jesus in glad praise is a bit of an impossible task. It's just as if you're the, the, this figure that you are to praise with praise and adoration being an emotion. I can't force you to praise something. Just like I can't like hold up my jacket and say, isn't this a good-looking jacket? You like it, don't you? And if you don't like it, you can't turn around and say, yeah, I do like it now. There's something in you. It, it, emotions cannot be forced. They are born. They are birthed. So we can't force this any more than you can be forced to fall in love with somebody. It has to be born of the heart. And so the way that you fall in love with Jesus, the way in which you are captivated by Him and totally changed, is to see your great need for this thing that can satisfy your great desires, that can meet you where you are and transform you with a power beyond any capability that you have of your own. It's just transforming from darkness to light. And with this in mind, we have a story as Jesus travels towards Jerusalem. Pick up in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now let's pause here. Leprosy was a terrible skin illness. Highly contagious people who contracted leprosy were forced to move away, live in their own like leper colonies, live far away from family, loved ones, the life they knew. And so you see in verse 12, the lepers, they did what? They stood at a distance. And what they cry out? Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In verse 14, picking up, he saw them. He said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Pause again. Priests would have had the responsibility to carefully determine whether the leprosy uh, had healed to the point that a leper could re-enter society. And as they went, picking up again in verse 14, as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. This is the dramatic plot twist to the story. Ten lepers are cleansed, one turns back, praising God, falling at Jesus' feet. But the plot twist is that this one leper was a Samaritan. Jesus' fellow Jewish people saw Samaritans as half-breeds, not worthy of the mercy of God because they had previously transgressed against God. They had abandoned His people. Strife and conflict between Jews and Samaritans was commonplace in Jesus' day. And this Samaritan is the one who came back. Verse 17 tells us, Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. 
this line that Jesus said to the Samaritan leper. This is really fascinating. Your faith has saved you or your faith has made you well. It occurs four times in Luke's gospel, and in each of those instances, they reference a perceived outsider from the people of God coming to Jesus by faith. There was a sinful woman in Luke 7.50, a woman with a hemorrhage in Luke 8.48, the Samaritan leper in verse 17, or verse 19, excuse me, and then a blind beggar will hear the same words in chapter 18, verse 42. See, these words of Jesus were never used on, the, on a rightly perceived, holy, clean, upright person. They were only used on the unclean, the outsiders, the needy, those for whom they needed the kingdom of God. And hear this warning. There is a danger of being so near to Jesus that you even have your prayers answered by Him. Yet you are never brought to a point of total unwavering brokenness before Him where you fall and worship Him as your Lord. One biblical scholar who I would cite his name, but I don't even know how to pronounce it. has got it in front of me, but yeah, there's letters and combinations there that I don't even know. He says, rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. Think about that. So how do I fall before Jesus? How do I not disregard the grace of God? You dwell upon your absolute need for Him. You never move past His cross you never move past the fact that you needed mercy, that you were not a casual observer, but that Jesus, the baby who came, came on a rescue mission for you in your rebellion against God, in the sin of the, leper, the, the leprous sin that clinches your heart far worse in a far more damning state than any physical ailment that could grip our bodies. And you see Jesus has drawn near to you. And as you look at the baby who came, it is as if he entered into the leper colony himself of human creation. And he said, I'm going to get my people. And I'm going to bear the weight. I'm going to bear the pain. I'm going to bear the suffering that comes from going to them. And it is going to lead me all the way to the point of death. But I will do it that I might redeem those who will see me and come to me by faith. So will the jail of your heart, of your life, Jesus is able to throw open the doors. He's able to turn on the lights. He is able to free you from that which grips and torments your heart, that tells you you are not worthy of the love of God, that tells you that you are nothing and that you will never measure up to anything. And he comes to you and says, I want to envelop you with the love of God who has come for you. You come to Him and you repent of your sin. You believe on Him. You receive new birth. You say, have mercy on me, Lord. You know, when Jesus was born, there were various figures that responded to Him in various ways. We will all either be like Herod, where you can try to silence Him, you can try to remake Him into what you want Him to be, you can ignore Him. You can move past Him. 
Or you can be like those wise men who came and fell before him in worship. In order to have an extraordinary faith, you don't have to drive out ghosts. You don't have to answer the most profound challenges from those who, who, who can, you, you, you feel can tie you up in knots as you try to explain the Christian faith. No, simple, extraordinary faith serves one another and never moves beyond the glory of Jesus.